As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Today on Feminine Roadmap, we are going to be talking about productive conflict. We're going to be talking about the good fight. Now, I know that you or someone you know, you might be asking for a friend, how do you have a fair and good fight and come out with great results? Well, if that's you or if that's your friend, please stay tuned. Hello, Feminine Roadmappers. It is Gina here on another gorgeous Monday morning. And today I have a very provocative topic for you. I am interviewing Leanne Davey. Leanne Davey is an organizational psychologist. She has spent the last 20 plus years helping organizations deal with messy people stuff. She's the author of The Good Fight. And today I have invited her here to share with us some wonderful tips and resources on how we can deal with conflict in our own families, maybe our businesses, in our friendships, and in our lives. So Leanne, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show today. Oh, I'm so excited to be here, Gina. This is going to be a juicy one. (laughs) Yay, because you know conflict. Who doesn't have that? Yeah, well, I think as long as you're human, you have conflict. And and for some of us, maybe it's repressed, but it's certainly there. (laughs) So why don't you start off with just letting us know a little bit about what led you into this field of work and writing this book? Yeah, I always say I wrote this book because I needed to read it. So I'm I'm actually quite a conflict avoidant person. Uh, I was raised in a family where we didn't do conflict. Uh, And so I've started to, throughout my career, understand the risk of not having conflict and and how that gets your business in trouble and your team in trouble. And I learned at one point uh, that it gets your marriage in trouble. And so I needed to overcome my own conflict avoidance. And so the book was just the end of about a 10 year journey to learn how to have productive conflict. And I felt once I got there, it was something worth sharing with the world. I absolutely agree with you. It's so funny because I have, an, I have an idea about conflict, and you can tell me what you think after all of your research. But um, I think there's different ways, of course, that people deal with conflict. For my husband's family, there is no conflict because we just, they just don't talk about it. <laughs> yeah. And in my family, um, everybody shares their opinions openly, and you don't have to agree, and you know, nobody gets too upset about it. You know? So I feel like sometimes when it comes to conflict, someone like myself, 
I, I address conflict when it matters. Does that make sense? Like if it's a relationship yeah. that matters to me or a situation that matters to me, then I'm willing to saddle up and go to battle, if you will. Yes. Whatever that looks like. But if it's something that's kind of like, for lack of a better term, unimportant, like maybe it's a real fringe relationship, someone that I don't have a lot of contact with, I have more of a, more of a it, there's no point in talking about it. So do you find that there's like a spectrum for each person, even in the way they deal with conflict, because I'm not afraid of conflict, but I try to utilize it when it matters and try to let it go when it doesn't. So tell me a little bit about the spectrum you've learned, maybe starting with your personality, since clearly we're, we started out on opposite ends. <laughs> we did, we did. <laughs> so yeah, for me, uh, I would be more comfortable having conflict in a situation with somebody I didn't know as well or didn't care about as much. And as soon as I really care about someone, then I worry about, you know, will the words I say last forever? Will I do damage? Will I harm the person or myself or our relationship? So, so I would say some people actually have the opposite of you, which is they're better at conflict when it's, you know, honking at a stop sign. Uh, than they are, and, and some people are far too good at that one, um, than they are with the relationships that matter the most. So, so I was certainly at that end of the spectrum. Um, there are uh, people whose conflict defaults are very passive aggressive. So, you know, they, they're kind of in this horrible middle. So they, uh, they have all the, um, you know, animosity or concern that you would have, but whereas you would bring it out out constructively, they actually gossip or, um, you know, spread it to other people or they get sarcastic. It's funny, you know, people think about passive aggressiveness often in women. Um, and, and what I'm going to encourage your listeners to watch for is while women will gossip, men use sarcasm. Yeah. So that's just men being passive aggressive is their, you know, little one liners they get off to try and look like the cool, <laughs> cool dude. Um, <laughs> I think of John Travolta in Greece when he's like the, the cool dude. Um, and so uh, that's another brand, passive aggressiveness. Then there are people who are just plain aggressive. And so they uh, fight about the issue with no, no concern whatsoever about how the issue is attached to a human and that they could be really hurting somebody in the way that they're doing it. So there's all different types of profiles of, of how people have conflict. It's a very, very small sliver that, uh, that both uh, broach the conflict so they don't bottle it up, but, but do that in a way that helps get to the other side of it as opposed to leaving a lot of collateral damage. So you're a rare bird. Well, maybe the people around me feel that way. <laughs> <laughs> so here's my question for you. What are kind of, are there levels of conflict? Are there like stages of conflict and, and tools that you can use at each stage to kind of maybe deflect yeah. a greater problem? Yeah. So I think the word stages reflects how I think about conflict more than the word levels. Okay. Um, but, but you know what, if I push it, let me answer both. So so stages, yes. So the problem is when we're having a conflict, we tend to try and jump to a solution as the first step. So um, we're, we're, you know, fighting with our spouse about where we're going to go on vacation. And, uh, you know, the spouse proposes somewhere that's incredibly expensive. So we go straight to, that's so expensive. You know, we need to 
actually save some money and we should just go to the hotel in town because it has a pool and a restaurant and you know, we go straight to a solution and, and contributing to a solution is actually the final stage of conflict, not the first stage. <laughs> so let's back it up and say, if you want to have productive conflict, the first stage is to establish a line of communication. So that's, you know, for those of us who are conflict avoidant, the first step in that is just engage, just actually say, we need to talk about this. But beyond that, it's, it's sharing your perspective in a way that says, this is going to be a dialogue between two of us, not a monologue. And one of the lines I, a lot of people like that I say in The Good Fight is communication, to communicate means to make common. Um, and, and you can't communicate to people. You can only communicate with people. So if you think about that, how often are you communicating to them or, or worse, at them. <laughs> um, and just remember, you can't communicate to someone. You have to communicate with them. So, so that establishing a line of communication is really setting it up as a two-way dialogue between, between both of you. So that's the first stage. The second stage is then to uh, create a connection between you as humans, one that uh, has empathy and says, we're going to actually have this conversation as allies rather than as adversaries. And, and the most important thing you can do at that step is to make the person you're talking to feel validated. Um, and so if your response to your spouse proposing this amazing vacation in New York City at the Ritz-Carlton, if, if your first temptation is to say, are you kidding me? Um, to validate them would be to say, okay, so you'd like to go to New York and you'd like to stay at a beautiful hotel. That's, that's validating somebody is to say, I heard you, it's going in. Um, and, and then you can actually ask a question, understand, you know, what makes you want to go to New York or what makes you pick the Ritz Carlton? Or you can even say that, well, that's a more expensive place than we've stayed before. What, what's making you want to stay there? And all of that creates this connection between you that says, we're going to problem solve this rather than fighting about it. So if you establish a line of communication and then you create a connection, once you get to contributing to a solution, it's easy because you could say something like this. So I hear you that you would love to go to New York and, and stay at the Ritz-Carlton. Um, for me, I'm thinking it because you want to feel spoiled and, and you want to spoil me because I've been working so hard and I love that you want to spoil me. Um, for me, I think I'd be more stressed out while we were there just worrying about how much it's costing. And I would love if you could just spoil me close to home. And, and what, what spoiled would look like for me is if I had you all to myself for two days. And that could be in the Howard Johnson's down the street. But if I had, you know. So then you're contributing to a solution. Uh, but you've, you've got to that point by really settling in and saying, we're going to hear each other out. We're going to understand what's beneath this issue. And then we're going to come to a workable solution. So those are the three stages of having a productive conflict. So first establish a line of communication, then validate the person and create a connection and some empathy. And then you can contribute to uh, a solution in this case, the perfect weekend vacation. Now I heard you mention empathy. Yeah. Um, when we're talking about conflict, yeah, do we use empathy and sympathy? Is empathy the greater tool? What do you suggest? 
Yeah, I think empathy is the greater tool. So sympathy is to feel the same thing as somebody else. And, and often that can take us down, you know, if, if, you know, especially people we're close to, if they're feeling uh, things that are very strong and powerful emotions, we don't necessarily want to feel those emotions as well. Um, because then nobody's got the emotional distance to get to the other side. Right, right. Uh, Somebody's got to row the boat. <laughs> yes. So uh, what we want to do is to be able to empathize by understanding where they're coming from, to imagine ourselves in that situation and imagine what that would feel like, but without necessarily going there and getting sucked under by those emotions. Um, so that's a great question. And I think empathy is preferable in conflict. Otherwise, I'm sure you've been in those situations where a conflict kind of escalates because there is too much sympathy. You're kind of resonating with the drama or the emotion of the situation. And then you both get to a point where you can't get to the other side. So best mm. to try and, and keep it to uh, empathy. And what exactly does empathy express? So I think with empathy, what you're going to do is you're going to be saying, huh, you know, I never thought about what's beneath this issue. I never, so, so actually let's go back to the other question you asked, which is, are there levels of conflict? Cause empathy goes to that. There are levels of conflict and unfortunately we tend to stay at the wrong level. So the most superficial level is the level of facts and information. <laughs> so that's, you know, your partner telling you that he wants to book a trip to New York and stay at the Ritz Carlton. That's a fact, you know, facts. If we're actually having conflict, it's pretty much never about facts, but we tend to keep talking about facts. So then let's go to the next layer down. The next layer down is emotions. And that's where that empathy level comes in. And emotions, they're just natural as humans. When we're really invested in something, we're going to have emotions. But emotions are only helpful because they give us a clue that there's something even deeper, the third level, which is values and beliefs and needs and, and all those um, really important and fundamental things. And if we're having a conflict, it's because there's some kind of a rub between what we need or a misalignment between mm. what we need. So uh, in the case of empathy, what we're doing is we're trying to understand how they feel so that we can then ask good questions and understand what is it that they need? And so, um, you know, in the example we were just talking about with the vacation, um, that the, the husband may be needing to, you know, he's worried about how he looks in your eyes. He, he needs to, to be um, romantic, to make a grand gesture for you to find him to be the most romantic and attractive man in the world, to be telling your friends how you're the luckiest girl on the planet. You know, he may have this need to, to feel important. Um, and that's why he's going to this, these extravagant lengths. And if you can express to him, I just need to feel like I'm the center of your attention. And that's all I need. And so if we can get to that level of talking about what's under the conflict, what we need, then we, we get to the other side of it much, much, much quicker. But normally we, we fight about facts. <laughs> exactly. What are the tools that we can use to manage our own emotions? So it, it turns out that emotions get bigger when we try and deny them. 
And once you realize that emotions are natural, they're okay, they're supposed to be there. And, and they're even more likely when you're highly engaged. So I always say to managers at work, they, they always say, what do I do if someone cries? I'm like, run, run, no. And <laughs> like, realize that, well, then you probably have an employee who's all in because if they didn't care, they wouldn't be crying. And if you have somebody uh, in a relationship who's getting angry or getting upset, it's because they care. Um, otherwise, they wouldn't. So, so the first thing you have to do is just realize that emotions are normal. They're, they're healthy. Here's a trick that I use that you, your listeners might find helpful. When I started thinking about emotions or emotional outbursts, which because I'm a big crier, so I have emotional outbursts. When I started <laughs> thinking about emotional outbursts as very similar to pain, it really helped me. And so pain, uh, in, in the short term, pain is very useful. So right now I have a bad shoulder. And I'm the kind of person, when I give speeches, I tend to throw my hands above my head and wiggle them around and do all sorts of crazy things. And right now, if I do that, it will hurt very much. And that pain is a reminder to me that, that I am injuring myself and I should stop. <laughs> and it's very useful. And when I started to think about emotion the same way, that, oh, something's being injured, something that's important to me, something I care about is being injured. I need to stop and pay attention to that. All of a sudden, emotions stopped scaring me. I'm not afraid of them. Now, if I see emotions from somebody else or even from myself, my reaction is to stop and go, huh, what's that about? What, what's going on that I wasn't in touch with? And once I give myself permission to say, you know what? A little bit of emotion, like a little bit of pain is really useful. We don't want either of them over the long haul, but a little bit is really useful. Then it's kind of funny because I actually tend to have fewer emotional outbursts because I, I get curious in that moment. Um, and so if, if somebody's across the table from me as their manager or as a consultant and they're crying and my reaction is, huh, okay, this must be really important to you. Tell me a little bit more about it then uh, it actually helps them get through it much, much quicker. So it's really interesting. The more, and, and same with anger, right? If somebody gets really angry, if your response is, you know, don't yell at me, then, you know, that's not going to go anywhere good. Usually the response is, I'm not yelling. <laughs> such, a, such an honest response, right? It's such a great response. It's so helpful. <laughs> um, and instead, if you said, wow, it seems like this is really important to you, that's mm -hmm. a way of validating them. And then they tend to stop yelling because the reason we yell is if we don't feel heard and we don't feel understood. And the reason we cry is if we feel frustrated and not heard. And so if your response is, I hear you and I actually want to understand you, it's very likely that the emotions are going to really dissipate. And you're going to get back to whatever the issue is. Mm -hmm. You know, when it comes to anger, they say anger is the most powerful emotion that exists. It, it, it drives people to do and say things that are so powerful and it can be utilized in a righteous way. <laughs> it can also be yes. utilized in a not so righteous way. And I think that um, when you said emotional outbursts are a form of pain, yeah. that they're a reminder that there's an injury and to stop and pay attention. It sounds like awareness is a step in the process of a good fight when we can make space for 
like you said, curiosity. I think we have a tendency, especially when we know people, yeah, we put them in a bit of a box and we read all of what they do through that lens as if we know everything that they feel and everything that they do. And like, we know them so well that we can just like, oh, you know, he's doing that because he's, you know, or whatever. She's doing that because, because we know them well. And I think sometimes we have to leave space to recognize we don't always know everything that the person we're in conflict with is feeling or experiencing. And if they are particularly um, emotionally stressed for some extra reason, like a death in the family or a sick member of the family or uh, extra stress at work, there's a lot of things that can layer in and, and they kind of bring up, I think, qualities in people that maybe aren't typical. And that's probably something as I'm thinking through, like remembering that everyone has layers to their emotions. And if we can hold a space for them, like you said, that empathy can creating that connection and giving them an opportunity to maybe even for the first time work through what they're feeling. They may not even realize it, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it's amazing when you make space for somebody like that, when your reaction to their emotional outburst is, is kindness and um, to slow down instead of to speed up and, and to make room for them at the end oh, the trust they have in you is so much higher. They're so grateful. You just, they, they start to think of you as this you know, just incredibly high integrity person. It's so good for your reputation. It's so good for your relationship. And, and actually it makes you really proud of yourself, right? Cause mm-hmm. in that moment I might've been fully justified in yelling right back at them, but I didn't, I actually helped them to communicate with, with me, communicate with me. I helped them cause they started out trying to communicate to me <laughs> and And by how I reacted, I helped them to really communicate with me about what mattered to them. When you look at yourself in the mirror that night, you just stand a little taller. It feels great. What I think what I was trying to clarify, and I, you heard me so well, is that I've had to work on uh, growing in grace. Yes. And recognizing that I'm not sovereign. I really don't know. I might know someone really, really well. But at the end of the day, we're such complex creatures that I can't possibly know everything that my children, my husband, my family members are thinking, feeling, and experiencing. I'm, I'm thinking, feeling, and experiencing things from my perspective and my own filters, right? Yeah. So there, that holding that space, I think, is a way of remembering that. It's like a, I call it a little bit of a humble move. Like, okay, I don't have all the answers and what do I need to learn here? Yeah, it's so important. And you just get so much more credibility in your relationships when you're willing to do that. One of my rules is I don't want to ever tell somebody else what they think, how they feel or who they are. And we use the language that does one of one or all of those all the time. So people say, um, well, I know you think this is stupid. Well, no, you don't know, right? You don't know what they think. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're, I'll hear people say about their team members, you know, you're so disengaged. You don't know how they feel. You have no idea. They may be anxious is why they've stopped talking, not disengaged, Um, Mm -hmm. or tell them who they are. Well, you're the, you're the detail person. So, right. And, Mm -hmm. and the quickest way to get into an unhealthy fight is to tell someone what they think, what they feel, or who they are. On the other hand, the quickest way to get out of a fight is to tell them those things about you. 
here's what I'm thinking. Here's the story I'm telling myself right now. Here's how what you just said makes me feel. Or, you know, here's who I am and, and how I think about myself and, and therefore how I'm reacting. So if we could, what we normally do is, is we talk a lot about what the other person thinks and feels and give nothing away about how we think and feel. And if we could do the opposite, we would get out of conflict. Well, we would get into far fewer and we would get out of the ones we're in much, much more quickly. So you're, you're pulling a Brene Brown and saying you got to be vulnerable. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> oh, Brene Brown is a hero for sure. Yes. I, I adore her work. Um, I got to share the stage with her once at a speaking gig. And of course I could barely, uh, I was mostly in awe. <laughs> yes, yeah. She's amazing. She's absolutely amazing. And the work that she's done is, is so profound. You know, yes. I think it's, it, it's kind of like Edison. Edison didn't invent electricity. He just tapped into that resource that existed. Yeah. And, and I feel like that's the same thing that this is something that has existed and we have to learn to tap into that resource in order to benefit from it. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's so amazing. So yeah, I, I think vulnerability so that there's a, if you're talking about the work environment, vulnerability is really interesting because, and I think it's probably also true in our, in our other relationships. It's this really delicate balance where you need to show that you're willing to be vulnerable but without giving up ownership or accountability. And I think where people go too far is they, they become wounded and, and their vulnerability goes beyond that to this victim mentality. And, and what they've done there is, is, yes, there's vulnerability, but the vulnerability doesn't come with accountability and ownership. And what we really want to do in our relationships is have vulnerability with accountability. So here's what I'm afraid of. Here's how I'm experiencing this. This is the story I'm telling myself. And, um, you know, I'm figuring out how to get to the other side of it. Um, you know, I would love your help to think about this differently or right. So if we can have vulnerability, but keep accountability, then we never get to that wounded state. And, and my experience is the people who struggle in in all relationships or the people who get to that wounded state it, it's almost impossible to come back from that because then they aren't able to see their own agency well first of all they tend not to see their contribution to the problem and they can't see their ability to affect the solution so um, that's where relationships end whether it be work relationships or or uh, personal relationships now you a couple of times mentioned one of my very favorite things ever. This is one of the things when I speak, I talk a lot about mindset. That's kind of like my passion point. Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, how can you do anything that you do without mindset? You know, it is the core of how we get the results we get and the life that we live and the relationships we have. And you mentioned twice now, because I'm keeping track of you over here, <laughs> <laughs> the word story. Yeah. So why don't you tell my tribe a little bit about what you mean when you say that? Because they've heard me, but I'd like to hear yours. Yeah, so humans are, we're narrative creatures. So we make sense of our world through story. There's lots of really interesting research. Um, there's a psychologist named Mike Gazaniga, and he got to study people who had parts of their brain removed to treat epilepsy. 
some of them had the entire corpus callosum removed, which means the two, wow. the, the connection between the two hemispheres of the brain. And what he did is he would introduce an object into one hand and then he would ask them with their language to tell a story about why they were doing the thing they were doing with their left hand. Um, and they had no access to what the other hand was doing. So what they did is they made up stories that were, that were perfectly logical stories. They just were in no way true. And, and what he was looking at is how the human brain abhors a vacuum. Um, and, and we create a story even when there isn't one. So, um, our experience of our reality as humans is very language based. And so the story that we tell ourselves is, is in many ways how we experience it. So let me give you my favorite example of this. So um, given your audience, they're going to relate to this example because it's about mothers and mothers-in-law. And so some of your audience may have those and some may be those. <laughs> <laughs> So many years ago, before I had rehabilitated my relationship with my mother-in-law, my I had little kids, I had a big job, it was crazy. And sometimes my mom would come to stay with us and I would come home and she would have tidied up the house and, and made me dinner. And the story I would tell myself was, my mom loves me so much and she has so much empathy for how busy my life is. Isn't that nice of her? And then my mother-in-law would come to stay with us. And sometimes she would tidy up my house and she would make me dinner. And the story I would tell myself is that I'm not good enough for her son and I don't keep a clean enough house for her grandchildren and it's not my cookie not good enough for you. <laughs> and so I now refer to this as the mother-in-law effect, which is when the same words or the same actions from two different people, we interpret them completely differently. And the mm -hmm. problem is if I sit down to dinner with my mother-in-law at this point, it's going to be with hostility and uh, my body language is going to be very negative and invalidating to her. And it's going to just go downhill from there. And if I sit down after the exact same thing from my mother, I'm going to be all smiles and it's going to lead. So whether your life gets into a vicious circle or a virtuous cycle <laughs> depends on the story you tell yourself. And so that's one of my favorite examples. And we have the same thing at work. So, you know, you send out a presentation to your teammates, the one you really don't like sends you back a message saying, I caught a couple of errors and I have some ideas for how to make it better. And you think, oh, smarty pants, you know, I bet you do. And your best friend at work sends the exact same message back. To, oh, thanks for saving my bacon. I'm so glad you caught those mistakes. And oh, I know, isn't it interesting? You want to come and talk to me about it, right? So um, the problem is we actually then create our own reality because mm -hmm. the story we start out telling ourselves is going to affect our whole dinner with the mother-in-law or the meeting we have with the colleague. Um, and and because we don't have these situations where it's the exact same behavior from two different people, we don't realize that we're just distorting reality and that it's really just the story we're telling ourselves. So how do we become more balanced in our perspectives? How do we catch that story and change it? What, what tools do you offer yeah. people for that? It takes a lot of self-reflection. So one of the things is getting tuned into your own emotional response. Um, and so for me, uh, I learn a lot from my, my palms, my sweaty palms and my heart rate. 
And now that a lot of us have Fitbits or Apple watches or things like that, it's one of my girlfriends um, sent me a picture of her heart rate monitor from a meeting she had gone to that was a particularly contentious meeting. And here she had the amazing data. She's like, oh, I don't need to work out today. I already went to this meeting and you could see her (laughs) heart rate was crazy. So for me, one of the big things is just tuning into what my body is saying. Um, Mm. You know, am I getting frustrated? Am I sensing that my heart rate's picking up? So that's the first thing. Um, The second thing is adding a lot more questions into your script. And and we often go straight to statements instead of questions. So, um, you know, for example, take the mother-in-law. If I'd come, if I'd come home from work and said, Oh, you clean the house. What, what made you clean the house? It would have given her a chance to say, Oh, you're so busy. And, and I, I just wanted to give you a little treat, right? The likelihood that her answer would have been, Oh, well, I don't think you're keeping my son in the style to which he's become accustomed. It's not likely she would have said that. So if I'd, if I'd left the space to be curious, um, instead of, to, you know, kind of concoct my version of of events. So self-awareness in your body, um, using a lot more questions rather than statements, um, engaging with the person, you know, just getting to the point of trying to, and then I guess the third one would be feedback, right? Getting good at giving feedback. So, you know, if somebody does do something that's upsetting to you to just say, you know, I love that you cleaned the house when you threw out my bath mat. You know, actually I was really upset because I had, I had bought that on a vacation and I know it's a little frayed around the edges, uh, but it's special to me. Right. Right. You know, we just don't do that. So what we do instead is we resent people. So we bottle it up. This is where we go back to the conflict avoidance. Instead of just saying that, and giving the chance for the person to say, oh my goodness, it's just out back. I'll just run and grab it. I didn't realize. Instead, we bottle it up and, and we resent them. So Nelson Mandela had my very favorite quote about resentment. He said, resentment is poison that you swallow hoping someone else will die. <laughs> and if that isn't just the best, you know, bang on kind of statement. And so I realized when when there's something that you're feeling miserable about when it comes to someone else's behavior, and instead of telling them you bottle it up, you're just letting the poison seep through you. They have no clue. They're going about their day. Do do do. Right? Like they have no idea. So you're getting more and more miserable and they're just carrying on. So, um, you know, if you want to poison yourself, go ahead. But if not, be more aware of, of when, you know, you're having these emotions give yourself a chance to question and and tell yourself a different story. And then finally share with them when you make a little bit of sense of it for yourself, share with them, you know, and you can even say it that way. You know, you're not going to believe this, but the story I just told myself when I walked in the door was that, you know, you think I'm not a good enough wife, be vulnerable, tell them that. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's lots you can do to get out of this vicious cycle of unhealthy conflict. Now, you were saying that you are technically a conflict averse, which is hilarious. It's like Brene Brown was vulnerability averse. Those mm-hmm. apparently. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I yeah, I, I think here. it's why we write books, right? We actually, so <laughs> as somebody who went to graduate school in psychology, it was very funny because um, you found a lot of people were doing um, 
graduate work in uh, in a field that had particular relevance to them. And the one that made me laugh was my husband was taking a class on vision, which is an important part of cognitive psychology. And uh, I think 10 of the 13 people in the class didn't have stereo vision. Like they didn't, they, they couldn't see in three dimensions. You're like, okay, the odds of that in the population are, are about you know, very, very low, but they're all in this class. So yes, like Brene Brown, I studied the stuff that uh, really mattered to me because I sucked at it. <laughs> so I am conflict averse. I, I am still conflict averse. So at the end of this 10 year uh, journey, I'm still conflict averse and that will never change. That's how I'm wired. And it was also how I was raised. So the big, so how do you, how did you learn to speak up? Because I'm yeah. hearing, I'm hearing you say, you know, you, well, you need to speak up. Like I would yeah. say in my, in my work, you need to find and use your voice in a respectful way from a place of power, not power control, but power as in alignment with who you are and what you believe. So yeah. how does one come to that? Well, it's a silly story, but cause I like, you, I'm going to tell you. Um, <laughs> So about five years ago, I got asked to give a keynote speech at a huge fitness chain <laughs> um, and they couldn't pay me my full fee. And I said, okay, we'll throw in a gym membership because I could really use that. I was hitting that age where it seemed like a good idea. And, and I really hated exercising. Like I really hated exercising. <laughs> so they threw it in. And it was very funny because as I started going to the gym and working with a trainer and all these kinds of things, I had a couple of clients who are, you know, those fitness fanatics who just mm -hmm. love every minute of their workout. And so they'd say things to me like, oh, you're running. Do you love it yet? And I'd be like, no. And, you know, then month three, they'd be like, so do you love it now? I'm like, no. But what was interesting is one of the reasons I knew I needed to get fit is that I was getting a really sore back all the time. So I facilitate and so I'd be standing there for an eight hour day and I'd get a really, really sore back almost to the point sometimes where I was distracted from the work because of how much it hurt. And then I took my kids to Disney World and standing in line was really painful. So, so I, I was going and I was doing my 10 minutes, three times a week of this ab workout, this horrible plank and crunches. And 10 minutes is forever when you're out of shape at least forever. Um, and so uh, it was really, it was awful. And, and I kept saying to myself, when will this get less uncomfortable? And I kept going and I kept going and I kept going and, and the ab workout never got less uncomfortable. It was always uncomfortable, but all of a sudden the whole rest of the week got better. All of a sudden my back wasn't aching at three o'clock and Oh, I could stand at a bookstore and look around for an hour without being uncomfortable. And, and, and it was, I know it's ridiculous, but I had this epiphany about my work through this fitness thing. And I realized that, you know, a few minutes of being uncomfortable three times a week made me much, much, much more comfortable the rest of the week. And it was that when I thought, you know what, that's exactly what I do with conflict. I avoid it. And then it just stays there. I stay uncomfortable and I have to like take the long way around back from the bathroom to avoid someone's desk. And, I, <laughs> and my husband and I give each other the silent treatment for 48 hours. And mm. there's all this pain I'm experiencing in my life just because I don't want to be uncomfortable for 10 minutes. And but so, you're uncomfortable. That's the ironic thing. Right. So, 
yeah, when I realized, oh, I can be uncomfortable three times a week and then be much more comfortable the rest of the time, I got to try this conflict thing. I got to give it a whirl. And so now I refer to myself who's, as someone who's conflict avoidant, but or conflict averse, but not conflict avoidant. Just go. like I'm fitness averse, but not fitness avoidant. And so <laughs> once I, so it's really silly that a psychologist would actually have the epiphany at the gym rather than through the psychology, but that's where I first came to terms with it, that just because something's uncomfortable is no reason to avoid it. And, and actually, if you're willing to sit in the discomfort a little bit, it probably makes the whole rest of life a lot less uncomfortable. I do have to say, though, there is something about exercise when I speak to other people about, you know, just mind-body connection. When we are harboring negative emotions, when we are hanging on to something that's bothering us, which is avoiding conflict, right? What ends up happening is we are creating certain chemical reactions in our brain, which are creating reactions on a cellular level in our body. So we're, we're suffering by avoiding. Yeah. I think we've convinced yeah. ourselves that the avoidance is actually the safe, quote, way to go or the higher road when actually we're harming ourselves yeah. when we avoid conflict. And absolutely, there's better, good, better, best. And there's also worse, worse, or worse, or worse, or worse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> worst just, just, just. The worstest yeah. ever? Yeah, yeah, I've done that. I know exactly what that is. Yeah. But here's the thing. Conflict is actually, it's like uh, you talked about emotions being uh, a reminder or they're a trigger or they're yeah. like they're a way of recognizing, right? right? Yeah. Well, conflict is that thing. Yeah. If there's conflict, then there's a reason for the conflict. Yep. So if we are in true conflict, and I'm not talking about being petty in our emotions and things, but if there's a real sincere conflict, then the wound, the fissure, the, the division cannot be healed. And that's why I take the tack of, if it matters, I will tackle it because right. you can't go far enough around a conflict. It has to be handled. Right. And sometimes we can have good intentions in solving conflict and um, end up with more conflict too. So how do you help people navigate when they've done something and tried to tried to fix or tried to correct a problem, address the conflict in a right space. They're not doing it in a passive aggressive way. They're not doing right. it in controlling martyrship victim, but they're sincerely trying and it just seems to get worse. What then? Yeah. So I think that's where y you need a little bit more vulnerability, which is really hard, right? So mm -hmm. Um, it's interesting. I hear this a lot in the workplace. So somebody will say, look, I got up the gumption and I worked hard and I gave them a piece of feedback that made me want to throw up before I told them. And, and they like started yelling back at me or right. So the, and I'll say, okay, then did you give them feedback about that? I'm like, no, <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, it, you know, we expect that if we, if we gather the nerve to do it once, then it'll be done. And right. you know, with the magnitude of things we're dealing with, it's not going to be one and done. Actually, right before I came on, I, I had facilitated a session with an executive team the other day, and they'd all, they'd been in a pretty bad place. And we made some commitments about how they were going to behave differently. And uh, I got a message back from the client you know, two days later, just today, right before we got on the call saying, you know, well, apparently everything we agreed to was bullshit. Um, 
And, and I said, okay, hang on, like go back and say, you know, when we made these commitments on Monday and then you, you said X, Y, and Z in the meeting, it, it really made me feel hopeless. Like we're not going to get through this or, and, and go again, try it again, raise the stakes a little bit, tell them, give, so I call it meta feedback, give them feedback about how they took the feedback. Right. And, and don't be afraid. And I think don't expect you're going to get through difficult conflicts in one round, mm-hmm. you know, go a few times, but then there's a point at which you should say, are our values really just incompatible? And it may be at some stage that they are. And that's when you get to really hard decisions, whether it be a decision to, you know, quit a job or leave a relationship or, or stop being friends with someone or, you know, all those kinds of things. At some point, if, if you've made honest efforts multiple times to be vulnerable, to, you know, share how you're experiencing it, to, to better understand how they're experiencing it. And, and what it's revealing is that your values are misaligned I think you have to take that seriously. And Mm -hmm. I think you have to ask yourself, you know, are we actually doing damage to one another because we're not, we're not really compatible and, and it's okay to get to the answer that, yeah, yeah, we're, we're not helping each other here. We're, we're not good for each other. And (laughs) that that might be where you find those toxic relationships, right? Where the toxicity just doesn't seem to be solvable for whatever reason. Exactly. And you know, I meet people who've gotten into that spot in organizations and then they move to another organization and they do great. They thrive. Um, It just, you know, it goes back to the story you're telling yourself. So if, if the person had been really wounded in the first place and, and had decided that, you know, everyone was out to get them and those sorts of things, then it just was never going to work there. But if they tell themselves a new story at the new place, oh, this place is going to be so different and these people are so much nicer, then they give it a chance to work. So you can have a a marriage, a, a job, a relationship that um, is sour and live to have another one that is, you know, full of joy. You've mentioned the word expectations a couple of times, and I think that's an important thing to kind of highlight that a lot of the time I think our own sense of our own expectations which we may or may not be aware of we get in conflict when our expectations aren't met yes so in in the book I talk about that as the valentine's day effect and many of us Mm -hmm. can relate to this we have these grand images of what the perfect valentine's day would look like um it's funny because each of our, you know, wonderful visions is completely different. So someone's grand vision may be, he takes me back to the IHOP where we went on our first date and we have pancakes with sprinkles, just like we did on our first, you know, how was anyone going to guess that that's your perfect Valentine's day? And he may, he may go to Tiffany's and get you a little blue box and you're upset because, you know, it, it wasn't romantic enough. That was just, you know, spending money. So Valentine's Day seems to help people understand this concept. If you have a grand idea of what good looks like to you and you do not share it, (laughs) do not expect the other person to make you happy. Um, Instead, one should actually communicate our expectations. So I call it the Valentine's Day effect. And I say in so many relationships in our life, we are just waiting for other people to disappoint us. Mm. 
And, and sometimes I'll even say to girlfriends, well, did, you know, did you tell them that that's what a perfect Valentine's day would look like? And they'll say awesome things like, well, he should know me that well by now. Or if, if he can't figure it out, then maybe he doesn't really love me. <laughs> like, well, or, <laughs> so, <laughs> or he has no clue. That's the other option. <laughs> or, you know, or maybe he told his friends at work, he was going to take you to the IHOP for sprinkle pancakes. And they said, you know, you cheap bastard, what are you thinking? Go buy her something at Tiffany's. That's what every woman wants, right? So you just, you don't know. So, um, you know, one of the best ways to stay out of conflict is to, to avoid the Valentine's Day effect, to actually tell people what we need and what we want and what good looks like for us. Um, and when we do that, it's amazing how hard they will work to give us those things. It's just the fact that we usually don't tell them and we sit with our arms crossed as though it's an exam and we have the answer key um, and we just wait for them to disappoint us. And that's cruel. And there's a, there's some deep habits along those lines for some women, you know, that I, yes, very. my audience is primarily female. So how many women right now are thinking, how dare she make that <laughs> with their yeah. arms crossed, right? Yeah. Because yeah. I, I like to remember that there's two people. If I only focus on how I feel and what I'm experiencing, then I'm not yet ready to deal with the conflict either. Right, right, right. And it, it's so, you know, it's so self-centered to not realize that, you know what, most of the guys in our lives or women, if, they're, if we have women as partners, most of our partners... They, they want to be the hero. They, they want to be the one who, you know, we run out and tell our friends how awesome it was. So they want to be the hero of the story. They, they're not wanting to disappoint you or let you down. They just don't know how. And if, if we don't help them with that, then we're depriving them of an opportunity to be a hero, right? It's like we have to sort of coach each other along the journey of our relationships. Because one of the other things that I notice, and you can give me your perspective on this is as different people go on different growth journeys, some people choose to grow and evolve as a person in their emotions, in their perspectives, in their physical health, their mental health, and their emotional health. There are other people that are perfectly happy not to evolve really. Like they just want to keep doing the plug and play living and that causes conflict too. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and you hear that, you often hear that in, in amicable divorces, right? That just, we were going in different directions. And I find that one often there's respect between the two people because the person who's really stretching and growing knows that they are no longer the person that, that their spouse signed up for, right? And they can recognize that. And they can say, you know what? I see that. I get it. Uh, you know, I changed the contract. Um, and so there's some empathy for the fact that the person who, who wants to and who is comfortable in how they are there's some there's some understanding from the other side the other person is like good on you like i i see that you're growing and you're stretching yourself and that's awesome it's it, it's not it doesn't work for me but so i find there's that profile can be um can can happen in really positive you know the conscious uncoupling sense um right that can happen in places where where there's really an amicable parting, which is, you know, really a nice ending to a relationship that was based on love in the first place. It's kind of back to that awareness piece, right? It's really yeah. being aware of yourself and the person that you're 
technically in conflict or trying not to be in conflict with. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think the more we can try and understand one another instead of judging one another, the better. I had written judgment down. I didn't come swing back to it, but now that you now that you brought it up, <laughs> let's just take a moment and talk about judgment and the role that it plays in conflict. Um, it's deadly. So uh, I think one of the reasons we avoid conflict is we fear judgment. We fear mm-hmm. being judged. And one of the ways that we throw accelerant on the fire of conflict is that we judge others. So uh, the more we can avoid judgment. So when I talked about not telling other people what they think or how they feel, um, that's really avoiding judgment because all we can do is, is, is guess, right? right. Um, and when we do that, it feels very judgmental, very evaluative, and, and none of us really likes to be judged. So the important thing is to, to avoid those sorts of things. Be as objective as you possibly can when you're talking about someone else's behavior. So you can say when you said, but you want to actually repeat back to them what they said. You don't want to go from the person saying, um, are you sure that's what you want to wear tonight? to, well, when you told me I look like hell before I'm walking out the door, right? We tend to put our judgment on. So if you're going to give somebody feedback, help them understand where you're at, if you're talking about them, you need to get rid of the judgment. You need to make it very, very objective. And it's funny, I teach people how to give feedback. And even at the C-suite, even at the top of the house, it's very funny. We'll go through this sort of hour-long lesson on how to give feedback and then we get them to practice and I say okay remember you can't have any judgment in it and then we get them to stand up and read their pieces of feedback out loud and and I feel like the beeper on the family feud game or like because like the average leader reading their sample piece of feedback has got I'm going to say four or five judgment words in their like two sentences (laughs) so the problem is if we're in conflict, mm-hmm. we're almost always judging. Otherwise, we wouldn't be in conflict. So uh, the, the trick is, to, because we're, te- you know, we're telling ourselves a story that allows ourselves to be in a fight. So that story is that we're judging them. So the trick is, as a human, you're never going to stop the judgment. That's, it's not humanly possible. It's not how our brains work. Our brains will create judgment. But what we need to do is insert the frontal lobe, we need to insert our thinking brain into the equation here and say, okay, I know that, I know that it feels like he said, I look terrible and that it makes my butt look big. That's not what he actually said. And so hang on and take a breath, take a breath. Yeah. (laughs) So judgment's deadly, but I don't want your audience to beat themselves up. I don't want them to judge themselves for being judgy. Yeah. I know you're a coach and so uh, you'll relate. I did some coach training and one of the early sessions in coach training was just that you needed to call out inside your head every time you made a judgment about someone. And I remember getting on the subway because I'm a subway rider and I got on the subway and it was like, I almost heard the sound of a pinball machine. Pipping, pipping, pipping. It was like judging, 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 judging. It's like, Wow. <laughs> I am judging everyone. Mm. And so it was really useful. So when I came to terms with the fact that it's not that I need to stop judging because my brain won't do that, 
but it's that I need to pause after judging and say, what made me make that judgment? What, like, what, what caused that? Yeah. Um, what's another possibility, right? And to right. then, and then to be curious. So the, the ultimate antidote to judgment is curiosity. Mm. So to switch from judgment to, okay, so if we go back to the mother-in-law example, you walk in the door, you see that the house is cleaned and the dinner is ready when you had already bought groceries to make a different dinner. And your first judgment is like, oh, my dinner wasn't good enough. But then you stop and you go, no, maybe that wasn't it. Maybe she wanted to, she wanted to cook so I didn't have to cook and she didn't know how to cook the thing that I had. Maybe that's possible. So it's, it's like, oh, I wonder. Or even just saying, oh, you know, I had bought, I had bought pork chops. Um, you know, would, how come you made chicken? right? Like just be curious. So you know how you can't keep your eyes open while yawning or sneezing? That's right. It's impossible to keep your eyes open while sneezing. Well, it's, it's physically impossible to judge while you're being curious. So switch to mm. That's the uh, mental sneeze. Yes, it's a mental <laughs> sneeze. I love it. <laughs> so if you were to distill down three really key important resources that my tribe could utilize, what top three tricks, hacks, tools um, would you share with my tribe from this talk today? So the first one is don't get into conflict debt. So we all know that we shouldn't get into credit card debt and we all know we shouldn't get ourselves underwater um, when it comes to financial issues. But conflict debt is just as deadly and it compounds the same way credit card debt does and the issues get worse and worse. So the first one is Pay off your conflicts in cash <laughs> as they're happening right then and there. No being resentful, no swallowing poison, just, you know, pay in cash. Cut up that conflict credit card that you've been you know, adding things up on. So that's really number one. Just don't get into conflict debt in the first place. Because if you deal with an issue right then and there, it's usually pretty small and pretty easy. If you let it build up for a month or in a marriage, a decade, you know, then uh, it's going to be a blowout when yeah. you actually have it. So particularly if you don't like conflict, you want to have conflict more frequently so that your conflicts are much easier and smaller. So that's number one. I guess that when we talked about, right, communicate with people, not to them. And, and that means asking a lot more questions, empathizing, trying to understand where they're coming from, listening if you get the clue of emotion, that pain that, that tells you something's being injured, trying to ask the questions to understand what is it that matters to them that's, that's going wrong here. So that communicate with people and not to them. And I guess the last one we talked about, right? Don't wait for people to disappoint you. If mm. you have expectations, share them. Um, share them so that they at least have a chance of doing what you want. Because if you don't share them, there's, there's pretty much no chance. And, and waiting for people to disappoint you is bad for both of you. Those are so great. Don't accumulate conflict debt. Communicate with people, not at them. <laughs> and don't wait for people to disappoint you. Share your expectations. So, Leanne, I want to thank you so much for joining me today and sharing your area of expertise in such a much-needed um, such a much needed tool that we need in our lives today, isn't it? It is. And I think just the fact that you use the word tool is so great, right? If we could think of conflict as a tool we have, instead of thinking it as something horrible that we're trying to avoid, uh, we would be much better off. 
like a root canal or something. <laughs> I've had plenty of those. It's not that big of a deal. <laughs> so thank you again, Leanne, for joining me today. I really appreciate your time. My pleasure, Gina. And today I have been speaking to Leanne Davey. She is an organizational psychologist. She has spent the last 20 years helping organizations deal with messy people stuff. And that led her to write her book, The Good Fight, which you can find at any retailer for books. But if you're driving and you can't write it down, please head over to www.feminineroadmap.com forward slash episode 092, where you will find hyperlinks to Leanne Davies' website and her books to make it easy for you. And while you're there, I invite you to go ahead and leave your name and your email address. I have a special gift for you. You can also head over to iTunes, Google Play, Podbean, Ditcher, and Spotify. Please subscribe, rate, and share your comments so that other women can find this resource. And please share, share, share. Share with your friends the things that are making a difference in your life. And as always, take the things that you hear from these amazing women like Leanne today on conflict. Take it to heart. Apply it to your life. Change those relationships. Get out there and get after that life that you dream of having. And I look forward to talking to you all next week. Until then, take care. Bye-bye. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.